Welcome to the American Association of Critical Care Nurses Leadership Podcast, exploring leadership in nursing through inspiring conversations. Today's episode is sponsored by AACN's eLearning, offering online leadership courseware like AACN's award-winning Fundamental Skills for Nurse Managers, with information available at aacn.org forward slash manager course. Now, here's your host, AACN's Chief Clinical Officer, Connie Barden. Hi, everyone. This is Connie Barden, and I, I just have the joy today to speak with Dr. Terry Richman. Uh, Terry is an Andrea B. Laporte Professor of Nursing at the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing and also Research Director at the Penn Injury Science Center. Terry, that is quite a mouthful. <laughs> I am glad you're here with us today. Thanks for making time for this chat. Thanks, Connie. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. You know, I think what might be useful for folks before we really dig into the meat of what we want to talk about is for people to hear a little bit about you and your career. That is quite an impressive bunch of titles that we just said, and that's only a tiny glimpse of it, of who you are in nursing. What would be the time-lapsed view of you getting to where you are now in your career in nursing? Well, I started as a nurse in the mid-1970s and absolutely started as a med surge nurse and then worked in a trauma uh, critical care ICU and trauma resuscitation in Washington, D.C., Absolutely loved it. That's where I fell in love with trauma and injury and violence. Uh, I ultimately moved to Philadelphia and was a clin spec in a neuro ICU at, and loved that just as much. Continued down the clinical path and started doing research actually as a clinician, as a master prepared clinician, and actually published research and got little funding for research. And then realized I didn't really know what I was doing. Like I didn't have the appropriate toolbox um, and went back for my PhD. And I uh, completed my PhD and have been uh, in academia as a clinical researcher ever, ever since, but all in the arena around injury and violence and trauma. So very consistent pathway. And Quite an amazing career you have had. You you shrunk it down into probably less than a minute, and yet it is a storied career. And I've got to put this in here because I'm so pleased that just earlier this year, we here at ASN were able to award you with the Marguerite Rogers Kinney Award for a Distinguished Career, which is one of the highest awards that ASN gives. So again, congratulations on being so deserving of that high award. Well, thanks, Connie. It was such an honor uh, to receive that award, and it felt like it came out of the blue just to get notified one day. And, you know, I've been a member of AACN for four or five decades, and, you know, AACN funded my very first research study with a $1,000 grant. Oh, wow. How fabulous. So to get a Distinguished Career Award from AACN, it was like coming home. And just oh. meant a lot. Well, it was an honor for us to be able to honor you. So full circle on that. Um, I have to say, it's not very often that I talk to people who say, I fell in love with trauma, injury, and violence. That's not a statement that people say very often. So um, 
this is where you do your work. And I think you specifically focus on firearm violence. So how did you get to that place that this is really your dig deep research place in your career right now? Yeah, it's interesting. It, I, I do broader injury as well, but firearm violence I've consistently been involved with for many decades. And I how I came to care about that was when I worked in this trauma ICU in Washington, D.C. in the late 70s and early 80s. And firearm violence was a huge issue in Washington at, at the time. And, you know, we took care of people who were badly shot all the time. And it just seemed like, really? Like, really? Like, how does this happen every single day? So I became intrigued with firearm violence as a clinician. And then as I pursued my PhD and worked with a colleague uh, at Penn, uh, Bill Schwab, who was the director of trauma, both of us felt the same way and sort of looked at each other and say, we need to tackle this. Like, we just can't be pulling people out of the river and resuscitating them and and saying that's good enough. We have to think more broadly about firearm violence. And, you know, it was just, it was a clinically driven pathway uh, to say, we, we, we are going to do whatever it takes to stop this. So you're saying rather than patching people up with those who managed to survive and come to you, you're looking deeper at why the heck this has just become so ubiquitous all around. Is that right? Yeah, I think I think it's both. I think it's how do we prevent it in the first place? Like, how do we prevent it so they don't even get to us? But then if people are shot, how do we do more than just patch them up and send them back home? Right? Because we know that re-injury is an issue often in firearm violence. So I, I will say I care about both pieces. Like, what can we do in the community to prevent firearm violence and injuries? But what can we do once somebody is injured to improve outcomes and prevent future? You're leading right into something I've been thinking about is many people consider this solely a criminal justice issue. It's it's a crime. It's a that kind of thing. But you and I have talked before, and I know you consider this a health uh, and a public health issue. What's the distinction there? Yeah, it's really interesting. I think I I work with criminal justice colleagues all the time, and it's a really important discipline and field. So I'm not saying we shouldn't look at it from a criminal justice perspective, but that's one perspective on a complex social problem. Health and public health is a different way to think about firearm violence. And of course, it's a health issue. Think about how I became interested in firearm violence. I became interested because if somebody's shot, they have a bullet in their body, they're brought to our hospital, they go through resuscitation and surgery, and they're in my ICU, how could that not be a health problem, right? How can that not be a health problem? So, you know, I think by recasting it as a health problem, we can think about it like any other health problem. So let me give you an example. Um, think about people who have MIs, right? Yeah. So when people have MIs, they come into the hospital, you know, we try to save heart tissue, like we try to save that heart muscle. We try to improve outcomes. We realize there are issues after MIs, like depression, et cetera, that worsen outcomes. But we also, in health and healthcare, 
look upstream. We also say, how do you get your blood pressure down? How do we treat your cholesterol? How do we manage obesity? How do we prevent that heart attack from happening to begin with? And the public health lens allows us to really look across the whole continuum. So we didn't do that for somebody with an MI. They probably would be considered negligent or malpractice. Sure. And somehow with firearm violence, you know, in, in some of the political issues around firearm violence is we're going out of our lane. Like we can't, who, who are nurses and physicians to counsel people about firearms, to prevent firearm injury, et cetera. And it's like, this This is my lane. Like if it would be negligent not to prevent an MI, it's equally as ne- negligent not to try to prevent firearm violence from happening or firearm injury from happening. So it is a health issue and it's an issue where we wanna prevent, we wanna maximize care in the acute care setting and we wanna really improve recovery. Hmm. I think that gives a whole other context because somehow people can talk about MIs and strokes and getting banged up in a regular car accident much more easily than they can about firearms. Um, And is that because of the political overtones, I guess, that are associated sometimes? Oh, it's absolutely with the political overtones. You know, if any discussion around guns in this country is highly political. Uh And, you know, we can come back to that a little bit later if we have a chance. But it's so political that uh, we had issues uh, several years ago where it's like as a clinician, this is outside of your scope of practice Mm -hmm. to counsel somebody on safe storage of a gun or how do we prevent gun violence from occurring. And, you know, that's we we can't listen to that. We need to say my goal and my goal as a nurse is to reduce harm from firearms. Um, That's within the scope of practice. That's my responsibility to not just treat, but to prevent and, you know, just do it with a very balanced, thoughtful way. That's what I do as a healthcare provider. Yeah, that makes sense. And I'm trying to remember, I don't have my notes in front of me, I could be way off, but I think I remember from hearing you talk before that firearms have become, is it the leading killer of children in this country? Is that true? Yes. In 2021, firearms became the leading cause of death for children or youth under the age of 19 in this country. I don't think yes, most people not cancer, know that. it's not heart disease, it's not respiratory infection, it's firearms. In children. Yes. And the other thing I think that was a mythbuster for me, because what we hear on the news way too frequently, of course, is about mass shootings and you know, 20 people here and so forth and so on. But that's a rather small percentage of the injury caused by firearms, is it not? Yeah. And, you know, mass shootings are egregious and they grab the media attention. They grab our attention. Sure. They're horrific and we don't want to minimize that. But mass shootings account for about less than one percent of all shootings every year in the United States. So they're they're terrible. The media latch onto them, which is totally understandable, but it's less than one percent of all deaths from firearms in the U.S. every year. 
we see deaths and injuries from firearms every single day in our communities, every single day that are not mass shootings and they're no less egregious, right? It's just, it takes a human toll. Now this includes suicide as well, is that yes. right? Yeah, and actually it's it's surprising. Most people don't think about firearm suicide and most nurses, like I'll say this as a nurse, most nurses don't think about firearm suicide and especially in critical care nurses because the case fatality rate is so high when you try to kill yourself with a gun. It's like 90%. So nine times out of 10, you're gonna be successful in killing yourself. You're never gonna to come to my critical care unit. You're gonna to go to the medical examiner. So we don't see it. We do not see that, um, that suicide, but in across all ages, firearm suicide is the dominant cause. But going back to the question you asked about, you know, are firearms are the number one cause of death in youth? What we find in that age group is homicide is the number one cause. It's not suicide. And that's kids under under 19, is that? Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, suicide is still a big problem in that age group, but poor, oh. proportionally more homicide than suicide in that age group. Oh. Heartbreaking numbers. Yeah. We will recap those before we yeah. close, but I'm just sort of breathless hearing you say that. Wow. Um, Terry, your roles are many. You're a professor, you're a researcher, you're a proponent for equity and justice, because I think you've alluded to some of the issues related to the prevalence of firearm violence is related to uh, equity and justice and those kinds of things. How do you meld all of these together? You're a nurse, you're a member of the National Academy of Medicine, you have so many roles. How do you bring all that together to do the amazing work that you do? I'm trying to think of how to answer that, Connie. <laughs> you know, um, I, I work hard. <laughs> yeah. That's the easy answer. Yeah. You know, bringing them all together, they're not separate things, right? So, mm -hmm. As a clinician, as an educator, as a researcher, I'm always focused around injury and violence. Mm -hmm. And because of the kind of patient populations I'm interested in, I deal with very vulnerable and what I consider almost the most vulnerable among us. And, you know, because of my focus on violence and firearm violence, I'm constantly dealing with marginalized people living in disenfranchised neighborhoods. Hmm. And if that's not an equity and social justice issue, I don't know what is. So they're all they're all interrelated. And you know, my work across different organizations and different groups, I, I just I, I'm involved in organizations because I bring that expertise to the table. And I bring a nursing lens to the table. And, you know, I think that's important. Like I always say to people, firearm violence is a really complex societal problem. It is really complex. And the only way we're really going to get a handle on this complex social problem is by working really well across disciplines and bringing all these voices to the table and really working together um, with multiple approaches to try to get a handle on it. Since you brought up equity and justice, it is, it is an equity and a justice issue. 
you know, we know the highest risk group uh, for firearm violence, for interpersonal firearm violence are young black men. Hmm. So older adolescents and young adult black men, absolutely, hands down the highest risk group. They often come from uh, disenfranchised, uh, impoverished neighborhoods, not 100%, but often. And you know what? Those neighborhoods don't happen by chance. Those neighborhoods happen often from decades and centuries of racist policies and structural racism. Mm -hmm. A good example of that is redlining, right? So redlining 70 years ago after the Depression was a way mortgage companies and the federal government color-coded neighborhoods Mm -hmm. for colors. And the redlined neighborhoods were deemed not worth investing in. And a colleague of mine, Sarah Jacoby, published a fabulous paper looking at the red line areas in Philadelphia from 70 years ago and the epicenters of firearm violence today. And they map in a very well done study and they absolutely map one on top of each other. So, you know, we've created environments where firearm violence can thrive for any number of reasons through uh, really racist policies that um, have created those environments. That doesn't alleviate individuals from being responsible for their own behavior. But as I um, talk with my community partners and people in these neighborhoods, you have young people who see no hope of the future, Mm. see no opportunity who um, have limited access to quality education, who have limited opportunities to make money. We help to create those neighborhoods as a society Mm -hmm. through policy. And, you know, we need to dismantle that. Yeah. Yeah, it's certainly part of the journey that we as a society are on. We as a profession are on trying to learn about these things. Yeah. Um, And imagine and come together and look at what we can do to make it different going forward. We're here where we are now. We we get here because of our past, but we can create a different future. Yes. I want to think with you for a minute, Terry, about taking care of patients uh, who have uh, are subject, have been subjected to firearm violence. We often think about the physical injuries. There's a bullet here and there and it's ripped up, you know, so many things and so forth, but they survive. They are the OR, they're in my ICU but it's not just physical injury that has an impact. There must be a huge amount of psychological and other kinds of injury there. Yeah, it's interesting. A lot of my research, when I the, the recovery part of my research, both in injury and firearm violence, so across, across all, really shows that once you remove like really bad head injury or spinal cord injury, like let's just put that aside and just think about general trauma, is once you remove that, it's really the psychological consequences of those injuries that affect how people recover or not. And, you know, I actually started there. So I started looking uh, quite a while ago at how do people recover after injury? And first I looked at PTSD and post-traumatic stress, you know, definitely higher symptoms, worse outcomes. And then I started asking some open-ended questions to people saying, you know, what should I have asked you 
in, in the study that I didn't ask you. And I was blown away because I would have people say to me, I couldn't get out of bed in the morning. I was so depressed. Or I thought about killing myself, but I didn't. And what these sort of open-ended questions showed me was it's not just post-traumatic stress, it's overwhelming depression. Mm. And that, and sometimes they're overlapping, but they're not always. And that, you know, so that really was like, well, this is what's driving recovery. Like, what do we know about this? And I think that's why I like being a nurse scientist. Like that, you know, who's going to think about that and, and ask about that? So, you know, I think with, for nurses who are taking care of patients, the um, we need to think, yes, the physical injury is important, but the absolute trauma of the event, mm-hmm. threat to life, the inability to feel safe based on what you've gone through, and the depression and PTSD, it's real, and we need to really... Uh, tune into that and screen for it and get people appropriate care for that. You know, I can almost see that there could be a stereotype about certain sort of tough guy males who come in having been a victim of that. And, well, they're not going to get PTSD after this. They're not going to feel unsafe. You're making me think that may not be the case. Uh, It's absolutely not the case. I followed a cohort of over 600 seriously injured Black men, about half, more than half were violently injured. And what we found was tremendous uh, burden of both PTSD and depression, and more so in those who were intentionally injured or violently injured, usually by firearms. So it's absolutely real. Um, I think as a society, we... We love stereotypes and we stereotype, oh, men don't get depressed or black men certainly, you know, don't don't get depressed or aren't stressed. That is absolutely, absolutely 100% not true. Uh, there's a huge psychological burden. So we have to know that, we have to look for it, and we have to deal, we have to deal with it if we want people to optimally recover. Yeah. And the minute we label somebody, oh, they're a gang member. We remove the fact that they're also a human being. Uh, We have, and I'm going to say this with all the love in my heart, because I love being a nurse. We're a product of our society. Yeah. And uh, we do tend to dehumanize Black men. I invite every nurse, when they think about how they talk about patients and change a shift report, the kinds of comments that are made about people, the kinds of off the hand, oh yeah, he was just sitting on a stoop or he was just minding his own business. What an indicator that is of dehumanizing another human being. Mm -hmm. And once we do that, then we're not going to be able to make the human contact that is so much what nursing is. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, that thing, I remember it from early on in nursing school, like undergraduate nursing school, when we were taught, be careful what you say about patients, always end of shift report, what you say to the next 
shift coming on will color what they think. And it's absolutely what you're talking about here. That has not changed over the decades that you and I both have been a nurse. We have to watch what we say about painting pictures and generalizing and stereotyping people we're taking care of. We do. And we have to be self-reflective and question our own assumptions. Mm -hmm. And we all have them. And all we can do is be true within ourselves and call ourselves on it. And I'll give you an example. So I realize the world is going to listen to this, but I'm going to give you an example. I work, um, do a lot of community-based work, and I go out to a rec center in, in Southwest Philadelphia in a very violent area, right? That's the kind of work I do. That's where I go. Um, and in a very violent area. This happened maybe 10 years ago. And I was, uh, I had to be at Walter Reed that morning uh, for something. And then I'm coming back from Washington and I have to get in the car and go to this rec center. And I always get, so I'm at Walter Reed all day. I'm in the military. I love the military. Yes, ma'am. And I <laughs> like, yes, ma'am. Yeah. And I, you know, I come back, I get in my car from Penn and I always, you have to go like under certain trains to get to this rec center. And I always got confused on what street am I going to go down? So now it's dusk, it's bordering on dark. I cannot, for the life of me, figure out what cross street I'm going on. This is before GPS. Mm-hmm. Get to the rec center. So there's three, three black guys standing on the corner. I pull over and pull down my window and uh, one of them comes up to my car and he goes, can I help you, ma'am? And so I told him my problem and he laughed yeah. and let me go. And as I was dri- continue then driving, I, th- I was shocked that he said, came up and said, can I help you, ma'am? And I think it was just because I've been in Walter Reed all morning. But I thought, why, why am I, why was I so shocked? Like, what was it? You know, that I, you know, these, these guys were hanging out in the corner. I didn't know them. I just needed, I needed to figure out where I was going. And I thought, oh, like, that's, that's saying something about me that I, that I was so shocked. And I, you know, i use that as an example to say, we all have it. We just need to sit back and reflect and say, why was I so surprised? Sure. And as I'm listening to you tell that story, Terry, I'm thinking, wow, I think I might have been too afraid to put down my window and ask for help. Ooh, what if blah, blah, blah. That's built in to me. Yeah, yeah. And and, and I wasn't just because I work in this neighborhood sure. all the time. But but still, and, and that's then what sort of surprised me, right? But right. still, it was like, never expected them to call me ma'am. Uh-huh. You know, they were raised by their mothers and grandmothers. And it was like, can I help you, ma'am? Yeah. And I, you know, it just, it was a gut check for me. It just made me really sit back and say, got to always be vigilant and watchful. We've all, we've all got it. And I think the longer I live, the more I think this concept, we have to pause and reflect and look inward before we can do much going forward and looking outward. It's exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Let me let me ask you a question. Uh, still hanging on to this psychological effects thing. We talk about psych- psychological effects on patients. Are there any psychological effects on nurses and caregivers taking care of folks who are violently injured? 
overtime and people work in trauma yes. units or ERs, et cetera? The short answer is yes, there are. I don't know how as a clinician you can every day deal with the results of man's inhumanity to man mm -hmm. and not be affected by it. In fact, if you weren't affected by it, I'd say you have a problem, like you have a problem. So yes, I think it affects us. I know in talking with some of my black colleagues who are nurses and ED physicians and trauma surgeons, they tell me, and I, I'm a white woman, so people can't see that on the podcast, but I'm a white woman. Um, so I, I've not experienced this, but they tell me they have an added burden, which I 100% believe this could be my son, this could be my brother, this could be my father. Um, and it takes an added toll. So I think it affects us. We need to recognize it affects us. We're dealing with some of the worst things that human beings can do with, to each other. And, you know, we need to help each other. So I think, A, recognize it affects you. Figure out what's your support system, what can help you, what can help you deal with that. Um, and, you know, because I could never come home when I first got into this and I was in Washington, D.C., I was living with my sister, who's a freelance musician, and I couldn't come home and tell her, oh, you can't believe what I dealt with today because she didn't want to hear it. Like she sure. didn't hear it. So we need to, to find support within our colleagues, you know, with with other people we work with. Um, going back to Washington, a social worker who was a, a licensed family therapist and I actually started a support group across disciplines with our intensivists, respiratory therapists, chaplain, nurses, every time a patient died we would have a debrief. And it wasn't a debrief about what did you do right or what did you do wrong or whatever. It was a debrief about how do you feel? How are you dealing with this? And, you know, my colleague, the social worker, who's, who's a family therapist, he would always, people would start talking about clinical things. I should have put a central line in. I should have done this. And he would just stop the conversation because I don't know anything about that. I want to know how you feel. I want to know how you feel. But we need to recognize that it affects us and we need to take care of ourselves because if we don't take care of ourselves, we can't take care of others. Absolutely. I think you really captured it when you said people dealing in trauma in general, particularly with uh, violence, are dealing every day with man's inhumanity to man, which is takes its toll. Absolutely. I think that nurses and their colleagues in, in various professions um, must be uniquely poised, both in our hospitals and in our communities, to do something about this. How do we, and you know, nurses are the most trusted profession. People listen to us. How can we use this position that we have to make a difference around this really complicated issue? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. As you say, we're the most trusted profession in the US. And you know what, let's take advantage of that. Let's take advantage of that. So I think there are several things that we can do as nurses. Um, and I'll highlight a couple. One is we need to change the dialogue. This is not pro-gun, anti-gun. This is how do we reduce harm related to living in a world with firearms, right? So we can do that as nurses. We can 
absolutely do this and say, I'm not talking pro-gun, anti-gun. I'm talking about how do we keep people safe, having as a society chosen to live in a world with guns. And by doing that, nurses can get the dialogue going. You can start having a conversation. And it's easy to do. You just change the conversation. I'm not talking about pro-gun, anti-gun. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about how do we keep people safe. The other thing I think that we can do is, you know, I feel like this is nursing 101, like start with where the patient is and then sort of take them where, where they need to go. We say that, but we don't do that uh, as well as we could at times. Mm-hmm. And I think many clinicians, but not all, so that I'm making a broad statement here. I think many clinicians um, stigmatize gun owners. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, once you stigmatize somebody, you're not going to get anywhere, right? So I think what we need to do is to start with, you know, if I'm talking with you, do you have a gun in the home? Yes, I do. Well, tell me about how you store it. Tell me what you do. You know, how can we make this a safer environment for your kids, your parents, whatever? You know, I think when we talk to parents, you know, the first thing we teach them when they take a new baby home from being born is putting them in the child seat the right way, right? Yep. But when we send our kids out to their friends' houses to play, we don't ask are there unsecured firearms in the home. So, you know, we can do things like, you know, do you have a firearm in the home? If so, is it unlocked, unloaded and locked, right? So, you know, we can do things and just make it very matter of fact. And I think we can help people understand we recognize there's multiple pathways for a firearm injury to occur. Yes, the gun's a player, there's a shooter, there's a victim, right? So you need to interrupt that path, right? It just takes one, change of victim behavior, change of shooter's behavior, um, make a gun unaccessible to somebody who shouldn't have it. And it happens in environments. It happens in economic environments and cultural environments and you know, any kind of environments, um, right? All of that plays in. So I think as nurses, we can also say, look, there's multiple places that we can come together to make these environments safer. We have a team at Penn who's done a lot of work in greening vacant lots. Mm -hmm. It reduces firearm violence and really well done studies or dealing with abandoned buildings or giving kids adult supervision and opportunities to make money. So I think nurses can just change the conversation. And the last thing, I'm going to go back to critical care nurses or med surge nurses who are sending people home. Remember, when you've taken care of somebody who's been shot, you're sending them back to the exact same environment that they came from. Yes. And we don't take that into consideration uh, in discharge planning. And we need to. Like, what can we do? Is case management needed? Are there things that we can do to, you know, create a safer environment for you? So nurses also can sort of open up their minds and say, where are you going? Who are you staying with? How safe or unsafe do you feel? And build that into discharge planning. Sure. Yeah. 
You know, Dr. Terry Richmond, I, I often end these podcasts with one or the other of us talking about what, what makes us optimistic about the future. And I would say just talking to you <laughs> makes me optimistic about the future because it's such a shift in thinking about this issue that firearm violence, violence in general, specifically firearm, is a complex societal issue. I think we know that. But it's also a healthcare issue. Yes. And you've enumerated multiple ways in which we as nurses and other healthcare professionals can really make a difference without getting into politics, without button heads. This is not about gun control. This is about health and safety and living to your words, I think, living in a society with firearms and doing so safely. Yeah. I can't thank you enough, Terry, for uh, sharing your expertise. Any uh, parting words or wrap up uh, things you'd like to say? It's just been amazing talking with you. No, and you said it, and I'm going to reiterate it. It's we have more guns in this country than people. All right. If we outlawed every gun starting today, it would take centuries to not have more guns than people are. So I think from a practical perspective, it's we've chosen to live in a world with guns. We need to do somewhere safely. And, you know, I think nurses, if you come from that perspective, you can move the needle. Yeah. And nurses are in a unique position to help change in that narrative. Absolutely. Beautiful. Terry Richmond, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to talk to you always. It was delightful. Thank you for listening to the American Association of Critical Care Nurses Leadership Podcast, proudly sponsored by AACN's award-winning Fundamental Skills for Nurse Managers, with information available at aacn.org forward slash manager course. We welcome your thoughts on this episode or ideas for future topics. Feel free to email us anytime at podcasts at aacn.org.